Sarah Rob O'Hagan is described by the media as everything from Superwoman Undercover to the Queen of the Jocks. Named among Forbes' most powerful women in sports, and as one of Fast Company's most creative people in business, Sarah is an internationally recognized reinventor of brands. Sarah's career has included leadership roles at Virgin, Nike, Gatorade, and Equinox, where as president, she led the transformation of the brick-and-mortar health club to an always-on fitness lifestyle partner. Prior to Equinox, Sarah served as global president of Gatorade, where she was widely known for transforming the business from a declining sports drink into a sports performance innovation company, serving nutrition solutions to athletes of all levels. I call it work-life fitness because I genuinely believe that um, physical fitness is just the foundation to absolutely everything that we try and do every day because when you are not taking care of your body, health, mind, or the above, you, the world can really take you over very quickly. Sarah's latest book, Extreme You, addresses how she's coped with the many challenges of managing an international company. In this compelling discussion, Sarah shared life-changing advice on how to climb the corporate ladder, achieve great success in business, and lead an extraordinary life. Please enjoy our conversation with Sarah Rob O'Hagan. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. Um, talking to you a little bit about how to find a role and an environment to thrive. So the first question is, um, tell us a little bit about your career trajectory. Um, you've led exciting initiatives, and if anyone's read the book, you've read a lot about these initiatives. Um, it's some of the most well-known companies in the world, like Gatorade. Um, so how did you end up there? Yeah, well, it's a... Uh, what shall I call a spotty path of a lot of train wreckery? Let's just start. <laughs> okay, because I, I always like to like break the ice. Hands up who's been fired. Let's just get it out. Come on. Yep. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Keep your hand up if you've been fired twice. Let's keep going. <laughs> just the three of us. We're in the club. We got this. So, like, There's the three that didn't raise their hand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, no, it's funny because I... Uh, Actually, the reason I wrote the book at all is because about, gosh, six, seven, eight years ago, I guess, I had finally reached this moment in my career after trying for almost 40 years to be successful, I guess, uh, where, you know, you would Google me, just like the two of us, uh, you know, Fast Company's most creative people in business and Forbes most powerful women in sports. And I would like sit at conferences like this and people would read my bio and I'd be like, oh God. This is so embarrassing. They're leaving out the really bad parts and people are going to find out. Like, <laughs> And in the end, I was like, I may as well just be honest about it. And it led me to this big um, 
kind of journey of researching what the hell happened to our culture that we decided that we were just going to be all about success is crushing it is perfection is perfectly quaffed instagrams is amazing resumes with no fuck-ups on them i mean let's just because that's not real you guys is it i mean it's just not so in the end i decided it was time <laughs> to, to get out there and be honest about it and so i obviously chose to share my embarrassing stories including getting fired twice but I interviewed um, 25 of some of the most accomplished human beings on the planet. And I said to every single one of them, the premise of this book is to not talk about the stuff we can Google, is to talk about the stuff that is vulnerable and is hard because I believe it's important for young people to understand it's okay. So yeah, it is a, lot, a big long line of train wreckery and it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. Um, so you've talked a little bit about this, but how would you describe some of your unique skills and traits um, and how do you find ways to leverage them in your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, so one of the things I kind of discovered along the way researching the book was that... Um, I believe, like, especially when you're starting your career, the system is designed to make you fit in. So whether it's like, let's go back to high school. You're like, you were either a jock, like in band, academic, you know, like we had these vertical things that we were all put into. And unless you're Serena Williams, you know, you don't generally end up being top in the world <laughs> at one of those things. And certainly me, I like, I never made the A-team of anything. So I kept thinking, well, this isn't clearly working. Um, but then I discovered as I was going along that actually really successful people often break out because they are partnering together multiple quite unexpected interests and skills to, be to create what I call their new specialty. So in my case, you know, I was like going forever trying to figure out what am I ever going to be good at? And it turns out all of the playing sport and sucking at it was all to do with being an incredibly competitive human being. All of the playing music and sucking at it was very creative. <laughs> competitive creative equals innovation in the sports industry. Let's go, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that kind of, that's probably a story everyone in this room has got. But I think, you know, the world is, it conspires against us a little bit and it tries to make us fit into a vertical and then you kind of go, I suck and I'm not as good as the other people. And it's like, how do you just find that little combo that is you? Because it'll work. Awesome. So that's you. So then thinking about the work environment, like yeah. what are the conditions in a work environment that leads to thriving? Yeah. So for sure, it's getting rid of fear. I think that's um, a huge one. Having being in environments, particularly I'm sure a lot of us in this room, coming out of the recession, if you were working in businesses that were going in the wrong direction, was pretty much most of America at the time, <laughs> I think. And we can all remember that kind of like the fear of I'm going to lose my job if we don't fix this, that or the other. And I think immediately that causes people to want to fit in, to play on defense, to not get fired. Like, And trust me, having been fired a few times, I've been that person before of like, what do I do just to not get fired? But actually, if you really think about it, that is a fast track to kind of getting fired in the end because you're not driving the business forward. You're not taking risks. You're not getting the business moving out of its comfort zone. Like you actually have to kind of step out of line to try new ideas, particularly in difficult times. So 
I think for me now, I, one of the things I try really hard to do, particularly with my own teams, is create an environment where you can take risks, even if they don't work, and we, it'll be okay on the other side. Now, if you don't learn for them, that's a problem, but you have to be able to, to experiment because otherwise you can't innovate. Great. So there's probably a lot of people in this room who are thinking about their own career path mm -hmm. and their own um, traits. So how would you talk to everyone here about how to find their own unique traits? Yeah, I, I do believe it's about getting out there and trying a lot of stuff and good and bad, by the way. Like I, um, one of the things that annoys me so much in the media today, we have this kind of message for graduates, you know, you have to find your passion, like you can Google search your passion, you know? <laughs> like seriously, do, I mean, am I right? It's everywhere. If you haven't found your passion by the age of 22 and be in a job that is your passion, you've failed. Like really? I mean, let's, right? Like most yeah. people I think when they're 22 are clueless. I was like, yeah. and I think one of the biggest messages I learned from writing this book was that most people don't find their passion till well into their 30s, by the way. So it's totally fine if you're still like cruising around. And most people actually make their passion. If you go back and look at like, all you have to do is listen to the memoir biography of someone like Bruce Springsteen and you'll see how passion is made, right? It's like years and years of honing a craft that you've become very interested in. And I think a lot of the people I interviewed in my book, like, for example, we're in D.C., Sam Cass, the White House chef. Do you guys remember Sam? Oh, yeah. That's who spent most of his 20s wanting to be a professional baseball player. Who knew? Like, and his, he was kind of journeying around the world, backpacking, like working in restaurants to pay the bills. And all his friends are, like, crushing it in, like, consulting jobs. <laughs> and his parents are like, what the hell happened to you? You know, as you can imagine. But he was finding his passion because he was working his ass off in kitchens, becoming interested in the politics of where food came from. Like the whole thing kind of began. And as he said to me, it's like, I never knew there was a job called White House Chef, but because I kept doing what I loved the night, that fateful night when he was at a, you know, event where he met um, Barack and Michelle Obama, this was obviously well before they were running for office and they needed a chef, he was the guy. He was totally in position to receive the ball because he had explored what he cared about. And to me, it was such a great, I was like, yes, like if we could just stop aiming for the goal and instead just develop yourself, you'd be amazed what will come to you. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I love so much about the book is you being so authentic <laughs> and sharing, you know, your failures in quotes, right? Because those end up being your successes mm -hmm. as you talk about very much. So um, as we think about ourselves, what guidance would you give people around managing their personal weaknesses? Yeah. <laughs> it's, I honestly think it's so counterintuitive, but it's just man up and own them. Because the minute you come out and just say, I suck at this, the elephant is off the table, right? Like, it's like, I mean, honestly, when I finally, for all the women in the room, like I spent all of my childhood wanting to be petite, I have giant man-sized feet. Like, and once I acknowledge that, those are great shoes. They're for great shoes for man-sized yeah, yeah. feet, right? But once you just come out and say it, then you're kind of like all of the fear of people finding out that weakness is oh, it's gone. And I think it's the same in the workplace. Like, I can remember for years trying to cover up. Like my career, I came up through marketing, 
and I suddenly find myself, you know, president of a $5 billion business and I suck at finance. Like I failed actually accounting 111 or whatever it was called at university. I was like, oh, this is bad. You know, I'm now running this giant business. I've no idea. And for a while I was trying really hard to pretend, you know, like you, you feel like you're the boss, you're going to know the answers. And when you finally just, I remember saying to my boss one day, I'm like sweaty every time I'm in a finance review and he's like, okay, we got this. Like, and he sent me off to like remedial finance training, and, <laughs> but at least he knew that was my weakness and therefore he wanted me to succeed. Right. So he comes in to help support me and surround me. So I, I do believe in the workplace. It's one of those things. It's the scariest thing in the world because we've all been trained, even a job interviews, like do not ever admit a weakness. But if you just come out and say it and you say, by the way, this is it, and therefore I'm aware of it, and so I know that I need to support myself with people who have that strength. It kind of takes the scariness out of it. Right. Um, and so as we're thinking about roles and people trying to figure out whether or not a role is right for them, what guidance would you have given your experience on <laughs> yeah. having several <clears throat> roles, some right yeah. and some wrong? I think I would say there are going to be wrong ones, and it's okay first of all, and it's, you have to go through some of the doldrums to know what's great. I think that's a really important message. Like, but I do believe when you are in a role that isn't right for you, whether it's, you just, you know, it's not, it's not turned out to be the, you know, category that you're interested in. You don't like the people, the team, whatever it may be. The minute you've become the person around the water cooler complaining, it's time. And we all know when that happens. <laughs> Don't be the person like me at Virgin who got fired because I didn't acknowledge that. I was just the rabble rouser that was being really fucking annoying. And I deserve, you know, you know, and now as a manager, I get it that I should have been fired. Like I was a rogue force, you know, and <laughs> do you want me to go there? It's such a great story because it's like literally I'll never forget. I just for those who've not been fighting want to know what it's like it's always a good story so you know you get called into the office and the HR person's sitting there and you do you the blood does rush out of your face and then they say in my case by the way you've lost your job your green card application your you get one week severance and a one-way ticket back to New Zealand we hate you so much we want you out of our country like, <laughs> yeah it was good and then the whole like I still remember walking through the office to get my stuff and all the people in cube land it was like these prairie dogs like popping up because they knew something had gone down and I'm like oh it's like so humiliating so that's how it goes down basically so I have to read this one yeah. um, because it's really awesome you describe your 20s as a quote unquote canyon of career despair <laughs> great phrase um, how did that impact you and what did you learn from that experience yeah it was pretty bad I mean so <laughs> I should preface the virgin loser girl story with the fact that remarkably, um, about a year prior to that, I had been working at Virgin Atlantic Airways, if you guys remember that. So this is in the 90s, so this is in like this, the Richard Branson still owns it all phase where we're like partying at the Cannes Film Festival, I'm 26 going on the shit, like it was amazing, I mean, come on. <laughs> And then I go from there to Virgin Megastores, where I was just so full of myself because I thought I was Richard's friend. Like, he has no clue. <laughs> um, which led to me getting fired. And so then... 
And then after that came another firing, which I won't go into, but that was the canyon. So I'm like 26, I feel like. So between 26 and 29, I basically go through two jobs back to back where I lose my job. And that's the part of your career where you're supposed to be kind of going upwards. And I just remember going, this is a disaster. And it was emotionally a night because I just lost all my confidence. I can still remember just turning up to work, just shaking because I just was scared. And I knew I was, I knew the second one was coming, by the way. Like (laughs) I was working at Atari, the video game company. I literally, like, I could feel it coming. Like, I remember I'd taken all of the private stuff off my computer. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's coming. Um, But, uh, (laughs) yeah. I kind of overlooked the fact. I hate video games. Like, why did I take a job? So that leads me to the next question, which is, like, okay, so there was failure, and it's devastating, right? I mean, you talk about that very openly, so... How do you find the perseverance to go from that to what's next? Yeah. So this is the important lesson in the story is that I, I do remember, it's interesting, after the first firing, particularly, by the way, as I'd been on this high, like compared to all of my friends when I was partying with Richard, I was just like, you know, I was so crushing it. And so then to suddenly get fired, I can still remember for like three weeks going, how the hell? I'm going to explain this one. Like, and literally I would see people socially and they'd go, what happened? And I'd be like, oh, you know, the industry Napster came along and the industry's like, you know, and I'd totally be trying to deflect that management were idiots, you know. Yeah, right. And then it's so funny because you see as you are trying to frankly lie about it that I'm looking at you like the other person's eyes they don't believe you, you know, and you know it because you don't believe yourself, right? And so then about two or three weeks later, I'm away and I finally am going through this really painful period of acknowledging I screwed up, you know, and I actually remember writing an email to my siblings and my parents and it started off with it was their fault and then there was version two, version three, and finally it was like, you know, I screwed up. And that was really, really, really painful But it also, the minute you have owned it, you can control what you do with it. And that to me was the biggest lesson because then when I was in my, whatever my next job interview was, I could confidently talk about it because it was in my control. It's like, here's what I did wrong. Here's what I won't do again. (laughs) Whereas if you're trying to dodge it and trying to cover up the, like why there's a gap in your resume, it just never works. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So we're going to switch gears just a little bit um, because you talk about work-life balance and work-life fitness. And so I think that's also something now we're plugged in. We have lives. We have stuff. Um, How would you describe... We have legs. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And now you're also doing a little bit of spinning in here. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do you describe the difference between work-life balance and work-life fitness? So I I call it work-life fitness because I genuinely believe that... um, physical fitness is just the foundation to absolutely everything that we try and do every day because when you are not taking care of your body health mind or the above you the world can really take you over very quickly whereas I think when you're you all have been in those experiences when you're really nervous for a big presentation or a speech at the ivy or (laughs) 
or whatever. And if you go, I always find like if I go for a run in the morning and I'm using the time, I feel my body is strong, my mind is strong, I walk in with confidence. It's just, it all works. And I think as it relates to the balance of life, like if you take care of yourself first, there is no question you can, you are in the driver's seat of everything that's coming at you. And I can say from, you know, I remember having my third child when we were turning around Gatorade and it was just unbelievably hard and I didn't have maternity leave and I stopped working out because I was trying, you know, trying to do, and that was the one time in my life when I, it just all overtook me and I ended up almost having a breakdown at one point. And that's when I was like, no, you have to start with, are you physically fit and healthy to take it all on? Um, and how do you recommend cutting out the essentials in your life? Cutting out the essentials or inessentials yes. or um, mm. cutting down to the essentials. Oh, to the essentials. Well, you know, it's funny. I so one what of the, do you take yeah, out? Yeah, one of the things I definitely it? found I loved was some of the stories of the people I interviewed in the book. One was Mr. Cartoon, who's a famous tattoo artist, if any of you have heard of him, out of L.A. And he talked beautifully about how when you realize that you've discovered your specialties, whatever it is that you're good at, and you're in a role that is really where you can thrive, you have to like focus, 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 and tune out everything that's a distraction. And in his case, whether that was, you know, friends smoking too much weed in, in, in the parlor or whatever, or actually what I thought was fundamentally interesting was he had often... Um, he was blowing up and becoming famous and had sort of financial opportunities that were short-term gain that were positioning him in a way that wasn't the artist he was trying to be. And he was like, no, I have to focus on where I'm trying to get to. And that to me was just such a brilliant lesson. It's like tune out opportunities. Like if you get asked to attend a conference that it looks like it's going to be highfalutin people, but by the way, it's not helping build where you're trying to go. Say no. Like, it's hard because you kind of, particularly when you're on your way up in your career, you feel like you've got to be everywhere, but you only have so much energy and you have mm -hmm. to focus on every decision. Is it building towards what I now see I'm trying to focus on? Yeah. And so you're in a very busy time of your life. So um, <laughs> if no one knows, you just put out a book and also became CEO of a company. Mm -hmm. um, so it'd be interesting to hear any tips that you have. So when you're in these periods of life where you're feeling overwhelmed, it doesn't have to be that you've written a book mm -hmm. and you become a yeah. CEO, but there's certain circumstances where you feel overwhelmed. So what are the tips and things that kind of keep you in that groove? I, yeah, I do think it's, you, you have to, I think we all feel, particularly the women in the room, by the way, the guilt of not meeting the expectations of people ask you to do stuff or whatever. And I think one of the tips that I have now learned is to proactively say, set expectations to people. Like I remember at the beginning of this year, literally emailing everyone in my close network saying, I am not going to reply for the next probably four months. <laughs> and it's not personal. It's just, I have to focus on a new business and getting a book out and my family and that's it. And I think if you, if you are honest and proactive about it, you don't feel quite so guilty that you're letting people down. So, um, so how many people have read the book? All right, well, I think it's going to be here tonight. So one of the great things in the book is you interview a lot of different leaders. Hmm. And so one of the things I think that would be helpful and interesting for people to know is like, as you looked at these kind of quote unquote ambitious leaders on yeah. paper, right? Like what are some of the things they had in common? 
You know what blew me away? So just to give a snapshot of the range of people, I'm talking, you know, we mentioned Mr. Cartoon, Condoleezza Rice, um, Bodie Miller, the downhill skier, so an athlete, you know, um, Ali Webb, who founded the Dry Bar. Anyone who likes her? Yeah. Or something, something. Like, I mean, talking very, very wide range of people that were in the book, and it blew me away how they just had so many similar techniques and often at times the same language around how they were thinking about their own performance. It was incredible. And, and one for sure was, you know, as I said before, this, this notion of really focusing. Like once they were in a role that they knew was the right place to be, really doubling down. And I do think I have a big message for particularly the younger coming into the workforce generation because there's a ton of job hopping happening right now. Like you see it statistically of people who are staying in jobs for six months and it's like you're, you're not going to get enough depth from that experience. And I think there was a real, I picked this up over and over again from these people I interviewed. Like you have to have depth to really know if you're in the right place. Then when you figure that out, you really focus. But the other thing I loved was all of them, once they got to what I would call sort of mastery, you know, you're like, let's take Angela Ahrens from Apple. I mean, she's like, it was crushing it at Burberry, like crushing it, like 14th most powerful woman in the world, all these great things. You know, she could have just gone, I'm out, you know, like, but no, that's almost like the moment when she's like, okay, I'm ready to get uncomfortable again. Yeah. And they all did the same thing. As soon as they were kind of at the top of their game, it's like they're looking for the next mountain to climb. And so um, kind of another question about these leaders, what are some of the biggest challenges that you found in common that they faced? One um, of the biggest challenges, I think um, balance, as we said before, expectations of a lot of people. Yeah. And I do think one that I found really interesting to learn from all of them was um, trusting their gut when really um, trusted inner circle mentors didn't agree with what they were doing. <laughs> and I'll explain that for a second. Like whether it was Bodhi who all of his you know ski coaches were try- telling him to train a certain way and he just was coming... 35th in every race so he was not heading towards medal potential and he had to just in his head go I'm physically smaller than the other guys I got to change it up and he changed his own training style on his own or Will Dean the founder of Tough Mudder anyone done Tough Mudder in the room it's the best like Will's parents were like can't you just go be a consultant they're great and you'll make lots of money and be a great family man and he's like no I want to go electrocute people in this race you know (laughs) and it's like I mean that's your your parents like that's the most trusted person you've always trusted saying I I think you're taking the too big of a risk but in every case they Nobody knows what you know in your gut the way you do. And they all just knew when that moment arose, I'm going for it. I see something that other people can't see and I'm in. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think career, um, attitudes and mindsets affect success? Like as you look at mm-hmm. across these people and yourself, you know, mm-hmm. attitude and mindset and kind of mental state, like how does that impact what happens? I mean, huge. I think huge because – what really did blow me away was the just enormous resilience that every single one of these people had. Like, you know, Condoleezza Rice, her opening line was, you know, I was like, how did you know you wanted to be 
Secretary of State. She goes, well, I was a failed piano major. And by the way, not just she played a little bit of piano. I mean, she badly wanted that to be a, to be a concert pianist. And she had gone for years getting to the top, top, like the toppity, tippity top of that field and realizing that she never was quite going to get to the top. And that decision is heartbreaking, right? To say, holy shit, I've been climbing the wrong mountain. I've got to start over, <laughs> right? But they did. And they had that courage to, all of them had similar stories where, you know, they might've been going in a direction and then it ended up not necessarily being right. But what I did find from all of them is that nothing is wasted. Even those years, whether they're in a completely different field, they do come back around in the end to help you. It's like, I joke a lot, you know, I started my career in airlines and I can so remember managing the seat capacity charts. Like you just want to blow your brains out. It was so boring. (laughs) But who would have thought like a cycling business putting butts on bikes is kind of the same thing. Like suddenly I have this experience that from very early in my career that was very relevant and you just don't know when that's going to happen you know yeah um so you have a mantra which is fewer bigger better Mm. um if i have that right Mm -hmm. tell us what you mean by that i just i i i definitely have always applied that as a business person in terms of any business whoever you are when you're trying to cut through as a brand in the consumer landscape trying to do too many things never gets through. You have to really, really discipline yourself to cut down and focus on big initiatives that can cut through. And I think I realized from doing that that you can apply it to yourself as well. When you spread yourself too thin and you're just trying to react to every opportunity that comes to you instead of just saying, no, I'm going to focus on this moment right now. Like my book. I mean, listen, I quit my job to go get this book done and make it awesome. Like, is it awesome? Is it awesome? She's not, so it's awesome, okay? <laughs> and so, and that's my point is like, if I could have, I guess, tried to do it at the same time as a million other things, I don't know if it would have been as good. So I think it's about really focusing in on those big clutch moments and going for them. And do you feel like you really do, you really are able to achieve more by doing less? I do, because I think you just, you are playing to your strengths, number one. I mean, I think that's probably the single biggest lesson of all is when you are focusing your energy on the stuff where you make the biggest contribution. So particularly for those in the room who are general managers, you know, presidents, that sort of thing, like you have to focus your time where you can really help the team's effort go up a level. Because if you're trying to be everywhere, there's a ton of other people that know a lot of other things better than you. And so you've got to obviously keep them all aligned together. But like your personal expenditure of energy should be where you can contribute the most for sure. Great. So I'd love to like um, get some of like the key takeaways. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope everyone does read the book because there's a lot in there. But um, as you think about the three, the three mm-hmm. biggest takeaways when it comes to achieving career goals? Mm. I think firstly I'd say being relentlessly open to new experiences. And that means, you know, you might be heading down a path and you get offered a job opportunity that's a side street, you know, and you're like, where is this going? Don't discount it. Like you, you never know where that might go. So just openness to experience, or it could be as small as, 
you're on a business trip and the conference started six hours later, go check out the city. Just go look, just, just take it in. Just listen, learn, observe. That's actually something I love that you, she prompted um, some, some people in our group, which is, it was a question, which is if you have a business trip, do you? And the question was, you know, fly home that night, stay an extra day. And the lesson was stay an extra day, yeah. right? Or a lot of us actually sit in our room doing email. Yeah. And that's not <laughs> So that would be the first one. Be very open to new experiences. Secondly, I have a whole chapter dedicated to what I call getting out of line, get out of line, which is ultimately you will really get to the next level, not because someone came to you and said, I want you to do this, but because you saw an opportunity and you created it, you made it happen. You drove the business forward. Like those are always the people who will get promoted because we all as business leaders want that. Um, but there is a time and a place to do it. And so I have a whole chapter dedicated <laughs> how to know when it's your time, how to go about doing it. Um, and the last one I would say is I have a whole chapter called be stubbornly humble. And I think that is the single biggest thing I took away from interviewing these people is I mean, these are like world leaders at what they do. And they're still like, I don't know if I've made it yet. You know, like it just blew me away. The number of people I interviewed who I just couldn't believe they were willing to be interviewed. And then they would say, are you sure I'm going to be in your book? You, am I going to make it? I'm like, what? You know, You're like Condoleezza. Yeah, not Condoleezza. Right but, yeah. but I just think humility is the key to growth because you're open-minded that you don't have all the answers. And it was a good lesson. Great. So, um, and for this audience, um, what are some of the key ideas that you'd like for them to take away from tonight? I would say um, just not to let anyone else dictate to you what is or is not successful. It, that is on your terms and it's for you to figure out. And ultimately, when you're fulfilled and when you're thriving and when you're in a job that you just freaking love and you found that place, other people may think that's weird or not for them, but if it's your thing, you should be doing it and go for it. <laughs> and um, so we're here at the Ivy tonight, so thank you to the Ivy for yeah. having us and for hosting this event. Um, and as we think about communities like this, how can these communities help people achieve their potential. I do think, uh, you know, I am a big believer. I have a whole chapter dedicated to the fact that to be extreme you requires collaboration with a lot of people, <laughs> whether that is a community like this where you can meet people, you can get um, a big believer in sort of partnering with people unlike you. So you get exposed to other experiences that are not what you may have experienced. Um, it could be, you know, domestic partnerships versus work partnerships. It could be partnerships in the workplace. You will only be the best you if you can surround yourself with really, really great support systems and obviously give it back in reverse. So. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, 
Subscribe and rate us on the podcast platform of your choice. Dream big and stay inspired.